We're in Second Peter. We are in uh, chapter 1, looking at verses 10 through 15. So I will read that together. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 15. We'll end, uh, next week we'll finish up chapter 1. I know it's taken a little while to get through this chapter, but just so much in there. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 is where we left off. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are establishing the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Verse 15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you will be able at any time to recall these things. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Peter's near the end of his life. And he writes this second letter to several churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. Churches that were being persecuted under a madman, madman named Nero, who's the emperor of Rome. And unlike his first letter where he was trying to, he was looking to encourage them to keep their eyes on Jesus, to keep their eyes secured on his salvation, the guarantee of the future hope, Christ will return, suffering will not have its final say, glory and Jesus will. He writes this second letter as a, as a letter to warn them. I can only imagine what it was like for an older dying man who loved God, loved the people of God, knowing that those to whom he loved and invested his time with are in grave danger. As I thought about this, I thought about this passage this, this week, I thought, you know, it's, it's so different from our culture. If you had concerns over someone and you were, you know, just, just concerned about their welfare, you would send, you know, you'd pick up the phone and call them. You would send them an email. You would send them a text message. And there's ways that you could stay in contact with those you love. Be it Skype, they could be halfway around the world. In Peter's day, there was none of that. Peter's day, he was concerned he couldn't send an email. He couldn't drop a letter in his mailbox. He had a deliver, and sometimes it would take months. And I think that only heightened, I can only imagine that it only heightened the concerns that Peter had and the ability not to be able to connect with the people he loves when he wants to. So he is deeply concerned. This text tells us that he was ready to die. And I want to ask this question, we'll come back to it. What would you want the people you love to remember? If you were concerned about them, you knew your life was ending, what is it that you would want the people that you love that are, are in, your, in your life to remember? Save money maybe for a rainy day. Take care of your health. Look after my children. Look after my sibling. Peter wants to remind this church to whom he will probably never see again. No, he will not see them again actually. He wants to remind them of the gospel. He wants to remind them of, of the gospel and, and point them in the direction of spiritual maturity. We left off last week emphasizing, emphasizing just how Christians are to grow spiritually. 
And let me just say this. We live in this post-Christian culture. There are a lot of people that are spiritual. As a pastor, I get to meet some of them. Some of them are, you know, I try not to laugh. Because, it's, you know, it's not funny in many, in many ways. But many people are spiritual. They have a spiritual side of them. Well, demons are spiritual. Spiritual beings. So as we talk about spirituality, we're talking about connecting to and, and centering our lives on the one true and living God who came down in the person of Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law, the holy, right, good law of God. He dies an intoning death on the cross, rises three days later from the grave, and then sends the Holy Spirit to regenerate a dead, wicked heart that has been separated from God. He regenerates our heart and now He, the Holy Spirit, is in the process of conforming us not to spirituality, but conforming us to the image and likeness of Jesus. That's the spirituality Peter's talking about. It's not, you know, lighting some incense and and clearing your mind and, and all the other things that people do. No, it's connecting, loving, treasuring Worshipping, conforming to the image of Jesus. Peter says in verse 1 that we are, our faith is of equal standings with the apostle, that the righteousness of our God in Jesus Christ has been given to us because of what Christ has done. That He alone is God. He is alone is perfect. He alone fulfilled the law. He alone then could die for sin and give us this free gift of righteousness, this acceptance before God. We call it justification. A declared righteousness with God because of our sins that have been forgiven. Only Jesus can do that. And verse 2 and 3 tells us that God lives in us. That He empowers us for His fame, for His glory. And that we have been awakened by this knowledge of the righteousness of God given to us. And, and the glory of Christ. And, and because that's so true and, and objective that... Uh, through that, we've been given these great and precious promises. So you see this work of God in verses 1, 2, and 3, this, this great power and this, this, this love that He has for us, this righteousness that has been given to us in Christ. And verse 5, last week we looked at, it says, because of all that, because of all that God has done, He's, he's empowered you, His divine nature you become partakers with, He's been giving you these great and precious promises, all verse 2 and 3. Because of all that, he says in verse 5, for this very reason, all that God has done, this is your responsibility. This is how you ought to respond to the gospel. Respond to the work of God on your behalf on the cross. We ought to respond by making every effort to supplement your faith. To add to your faith. To add to your faith. He says knowledge. First virtue, goodness, knowledge. Knowledge, self-control. Steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. Godliness doesn't mean just moral living. It's, it's a life devoted to Christ. Brotherly affection, Philadelphia, brotherly love. And, and with brotherly love, love, agape, self-sacrificing love. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to be fruitful... If you're a Christian, I hope you want to be fruitful and you want to be productive, not unproductive, then add these qualities to your faith. And we see the, the, the work of God and human responsibility coming together. And Peter says, you, you should add these things. That those who participate in the power of God or have the power of God in them and participate in the nature of God 
needs to add these qualities to their faith. Verse 9, though, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted and blind, forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. So in other words, you can be growing. So in other words, you, if you're not growing in these qualities, he says you have forgotten the gospel. Last week we said there's two ways to grow in the gospel. External, rules, moral, you know, legalism. I'll add all these things so that God loves me. And then there's organic, where the gospel is transforming us. It's because God loves me, because I'm loved, because I'm forgiven, because I'm accepted. Therefore, I will obey. There's a big difference between the two. One is external. I think I'll just add so that God loves me. The other one is because God loves me, I will grow in likeness of Christ. Which brings us to verse 10. Paul says, if, if you have these qualities, you won't be unfruitful. You won't be unproductive. If you don't have these qualities, it's because you have forgotten the gospel. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So we'll see our headings, just two today. I'm having problems with this again. Okay. Practicing the gospel... He just talked about adding to, adding to your faith, practicing the gospel brings certainty in your life. Brings assurance in your life. Remembering the gospel brings stability in your life. Okay? So those are the two headings we're gonna, we're gonna see. Verse 10 again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will, what does he say? Never, never fall. Peter's saying, look, there's some of you who might not be practicing, might not be growing, and not, might not be remembering the gospel. You need, to, you need to be all the more diligent in confirming your call and your election. In other words, it is imperative, folks, listen, that believers are growing in the faith. Because your spiritual growth in the faith is evidence that gives you the assurance of your salvation. This evidence, the adding to our faith, the qualities mentioned in verses 5-7, through points to the reality that God's divine nature is indwelling in you. It's demonstration of the salvation God has provided for you. Therefore... The other flip side of that, if a person gives no evidence of having the divine nature in them, then his or her salvation is in question, is in doubt. That's what he's saying. This summer, we're doing a summer series on uh, Because You Asked, and people are asking about election. We're going to be doing a series on election and predestination. We're going to do a series on suffering and sovereignty. And we're going to do a series on eternal security or eternal salvation. And that's kind of what he's talking about here, but he's talking about, he's talking about what does that look like? So I'm not going to get too much into election today. Come back this summer, we're going to be preaching on it in greater detail. But here he used the word, be all the more diligent. The word diligent is like the word effort in verse 5. Be, be striving. Be, 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 uh, in effort to try and, you know, to see that your election and your calling is sure. Now, the word sure, some of you have an NIV. The NIV Bible used the word confirm. I like that much better. Make sure your calling and election, or confirm your call and your election. It's a legal term in the, in the Greek world. It, it denotes something that is valid or something that is ratified. 
In other words, what Peter is saying is that we are not not to be lackadaisical about growing in our faith because the growing in our faith confirms, makes it sure, the genuineness of our faith. Notice what Peter is not saying. He is not saying that your obedience and spiritual growth will earn your salvation. He doesn't say be all the more diligent to earn your calling or election. He says be all the more diligent to confirm. Make sure, online that in your Bible, calling and your election. He says your pursuit of godliness will assure you of your salvation. If we're walking around in the dark, if we're walking around in the dark, we're going to fall. But Christians who are growing are walking in the light as He is in the light. We're confessing our sins, we're repenting of our sins, and we have that sense of security of knowing Christ. Okay, so it's not our profession of faith that assures us that we are saved. It's the progression of our faith that points to the evidence that genuine salvation has taken place in our lives. It's not going to happen just, you know, by by uh, just a lackadaisical approach to adding to your faith. It's a deliberate, concentrated, and concerted effort. And the bottom line is, the bottom line. Sin, a life of sin, a life of characterized by sin, you can't have the assurance of your salvation. When your life is characterized by sin and rebellion, there's no assurance in your life. Because disobedience, a life characterized just by disobedience and assurance, cannot sleep in the same bed. It's oil and water. They don't jive, they don't groove, they don't come together. And one of the things he's also not saying, or at least he's saying you need to look at, it's not about signing a card one day. I know we get in trouble for this, but it's not even about just an altar call. All those things are good. It's, it's not just about raising my hand one day back when, and, and I'm in. What Peter's talking about, I think people are, are, are wrongfully you know, they have a wrongful understanding is that I, I, I prayed that prayer way back when. I said that, you know, what, what the preacher said, I said. And one day when he called me up to the altar and nothing's changed, I've gone on my life, but man, I'm in, I'm secure because, you know, uh, somebody told me I was. Peter's saying, don't overlook the clear biblical truth that new life in Christ always manifests itself in the fruit or the growth of godliness. Peter wants to warn these folks because there was false teaching saying in, the, in, that, in that day that you could do whatever you want. Antinomianism, and we talked about that. You could live any life, any old way. You just need to, to say the prayer, say the words, and, and live the way you want. Peter's like, no, 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 no. Warning. The people or the persons, you and I who claim to be a child of God, but whose character and conduct gives no evidence of spiritual growth, it's deceiving yourself and deceiving myself if that's the case and headed for judgment. So we have to make sure, folks, brothers and sisters, friends, family, we have to make sure. Do you belong to Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? Are you playing a game? Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The security, objectively, of being a Christian is what Christ has done. Not works. 
You can't earn it. You can't work toward it. You can't add to it. Christ on the cross, dying on the cross, says it is finished. Salvation secured. But subjectively in your life, if you live a life of rebellion, a constant rebellion, you can't have subjectively the security that you belong to Him. It just won't work. It just doesn't work that way. What he says here, if you look again at verse 10, he says, Be all the more diligent to make uh, or confirm in the NIV your calling and election sure. The word calling and the word election, we already saw the word calling, is the work of God. He's not talking about something you can do. He's not talking about something you could do. The call of God, and when he talks about the call of God, he talks about that call where God opened your mind and heart to see the gospel. He said in First Peter that he called us from light to, from out of darkness into light. It's a call of the gospel that when we hear, we see, we treasure, we love, we recognize we're sinners, and we turn and have faith in Jesus. That's the call. And God's sovereignty in calling and choosing, or as it says, electing us, and our responsibility comes together in this passage. In chronological order, obviously the call comes first. It brought regeneration. It opened our hearts that was once dead and separated from God. It imparted new life in us. Election, the word election is, is an act of God where in eternity past, He chose those who would be saved. Election is unconditional. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's a biblical word. It's very, from the beginning to the end of where we'll see that in a gospel class, um, it, it's, it's a word in the Bible, it's the word that God uses, and no matter what side you're on in the debate, it's unconditional. You didn't earn it. It has nothing to do with what you did. Over and over in the Bible, He chose Israel, not because Israel was so wonderful, but because of His eternal covenantal love with, on them. It's His choice. And He doesn't choose us because of what we do. He doesn't even choose us for some unforeseen faith or some faith that we had in the future. It's simply an act of God. We saw that in Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the world. So salvation is of God. He chose us. He calls us. And if not, we would be dead in our sins. I mean, that's, that's what the Bible teaches us. People get confused when they talk about the call of God, where there's this, this work of God, that opens my heart and mind to the gospel, and then they see this other call of the Bible where it calls everyone to repentance, but not everybody comes. And unless you understand that there is, a, there is an invitation that generally speaks to all people, John 3.16, whoever, right? God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him, right? Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then the Bible talks about this call where God awakens the heart to faith. It's our job, brothers and sisters, for the general call. It's God's job who He regenerates. We don't make those decisions and we certainly should not be pointing fingers or thinking anyone should not hear the gospel. We have to share the gospel. God ordains the means and He ordains how it happens and who shares the gospel. He, everything is of God. So He calls the church to share the gospel with everyone. For God so loved the world but there is a sense of God's call where the Spirit opens our minds and hearts and we repent and have saving faith. Second Thessalonians 2, if you want to write that down. Second Thessalonians 2.13, he says, Paul writing, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So he sees work of the Spirit, belief in the truth. 
Verse 14. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this He called you through our Gospel. Alright, so I need to share the Gospel. Paul is preaching the Gospel. He's sharing the Gospel with everyone. God, at that point, calls some to Himself, He says, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says, make sure your calling, make sure your election is sure. Why do you do that? Well, have you ever repented of your sins? We say it here all the time. Turn to Jesus. Love Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust Jesus for your salvation. He died for you. He rose for you. Have you ever trusted Him? Have you ever obeyed the call to repent and believe on Jesus? How do you else do you know? Has God changed your heart? Has God changed your heart? Now, I'm not saying that everyone has to be at the same place at the same time. The Bible doesn't teach that. But has God changed your heart? Was there a time that you wanted nothing to do with Him and now you love Him? Was there a time that you did not want to sing praises to His name and now you want to sing to the glory of His name? Was there a time that you did not want to go to church and fellowship with the brethren and now you can't wait to see the family of God? Was there a time that the Bible sat on your shelf never looking at it, but now you want to read what God has to say to you? That, that's evidence of a changed heart. But if you say, I'm a Christian, I want none of those things, Peter's saying, be warned. It's nothing you can do. It's work of God. But turn to Him. He will give you new life. If you repent and you come to Him, confessing your sins, turning from your sins, invite Him into your life, He will come into you. I say this with love. I say this with concern as well as Peter. It's not a game. Turn from your sins. Know and and, and be diligent about it. Is your calling and election sure? That's what he says. For in verse 11, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, when 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 it's true of me and I'm sure of it, there's this entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. Now, that phrase, the Greeks used to use that phrase when it would welcome an Olympic winner who would return home to the city. Or when a battleship would come into the harbor of a city after winning a victory with the flags waved and and, and the victorious, you know, uh, celebration as people waited for these battleships to come back. We won the victory. And this, you know, this glorious um, uh, return and a reception. In contrast to that, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. We went through this um, a couple of, about two years ago. But he writes there, you could go into heaven like that, or, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, if any man builds upon a foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will be evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Not talking about salvation, he's talking about all that you've done with your salvation. He says, for if any man's work has been built, has been built upon it, remains, he will receive a reward. Celebration. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as through fire. So you could be this sailor, you know, you, you could be these, these battleships, crooked, burning, smoke pouring out, filling with water, 
you know, just coming into the harbor upside down, hoping you make it to the end. Or you could be a guy running from your house because it's on fire and everything gets burned down. Or you could be the battleship. Sitting straight. Flags waved. You could be the Olympic runner coming home, winning the medal. Now, I don't know about you. I wasn't the smartest pencil in the, in, in the case when I was in school. But I tried. Okay? I'm hoping and I'm thinking that most of us want to be sitting upright when we go to heaven. Not no matter whether we go. He's saying that you can go in shipwrecked and barely making it, skidding in. Or you can walk proudly and hear, well, good, faithful servant. Not everybody's going to hear that. This is the warning. Right? I'm, I, don't shoot the mailman. I'm just delivering the mail. Right? This is a warning. And, and folks, I might as well get this out there too. The promises of God, amen, right? They're just as serious as the warnings. We can't say, oh, yeah, the promises of God. Ah, I don't really care about the warnings. No, no, no. It, it's, it's the whole package. Be warned. Be warned. And you know, of all the people to share this warning, I can see it being Peter. Right? Peter, Peter knows himself. Peter knows that Satan would love to, 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 wherever you are right now, to say, it's too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. Peter would say, you know what? I've been there. I know what it's like to live with guilt and shame. I know what it's like to deny my Lord. But you know what? You could finish well. You could finish well. It's not over. You're here, you're breathing. It's not over. Because in Christ there is hope. In Christ there is grace. And Peter would say, you know what? Head to the path. Repent, turn, be cleansed, wash, be washed of your sins. And you know what? Head to the finish line. Head up, chin up. So that God would bring you home with the flags waving into His eternal home. Hope I never did the verse. Okay, there's the verse. Hopefully you had it. Okay. Number two, remembering the gospel brings stability. So not only does practicing the gospel bring certainty, and when you're not practicing, you won't be certain, but remembering the gospel brings stability. Verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you. I'm saying it again, I really want to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Why is it so important to remember the truth? Why is it always or so important to remember certain truths of the Bible? Is it because we simply forget them? Is it is it a cognitive thing? I mean, when you come in, in two weeks from now, we'll have the communion tables out. And we do that on a monthly, at least, or twice a month. Do you walk in the church and you see the tables out and you think, Oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins. I forgot. Is that is that when God says in Isaiah, "I am He who blots out your sins," I will not remember them the more. That God says, "What did you do? I, I I missed it." Like, no. So remembering in the Bible doesn't mean just a cognitive remembrance. God does not see the rainbow in the sky and go, "I put that there for a reason." Um, you know, but he, but but He says. I'll remember the promise I made to you. He tells the Israelites in Leviticus, confess your sins, humble yourself, and I will remember the covenant that I made with Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. 
Does God go, I gave that guy a promise somewhere. I've got to try to remember that promise I made. That, that, that's not what it means. Because remembering in the Bible has to do with taking it in. It's not just simply cognitive. Okay? It has to do with, with, with not only knowing, but being part of who you are. That's, that's what the Bible means when it says taking it in. Have you ever taken an exam in school and you think you know the material? And then you sit and you start working on the, the test and they want you to take the material and then take that material and then work out a problem to its conclusion and you realize, oh, I, I thought I knew it. I don't, I don't know it. And like now, now you're stuck because you think you have a working knowledge of it, but you, you're really not really sure. And now you're thinking, oh, I, I don't really know. I thought I possessed it, but I, I must not really know because I, I can't work this out. Why does Peter think it's so important to, to take something in, to possess the truth of the gospel, to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded that we must grow in the gospel? Because you and I, you and I, me too, forget. We forget. And what happens, because our hearts are sinful, we remember the unflattering things, not the encouraging things, don't we? We remember things that hurt us. Things that are said to us that hurt us. Our hearts are so corrupted by sin that we often don't remember the good. The truth. We remember the hurt and the pain. We tend to remember words that, are, that hurt, not heal. Or words that damage our hearts and not mend our hearts. We've been tainted by sin and we don't really remember the good stuff. And I don't care if you've been a Christian for a week or a hundred years. It remains true. Look, look at you. If you have children, you could say something for days and encourage them. For days. And at the end of the week, say something unflattering, something out of, you know, anger, something you said that you shouldn't say. And what is it that they remember the next day? A week later. That word. They don't remember the encouragement. You try to encourage them and you just kind of undo everything because that's our hearts. That's our sinful hearts. And, 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 and Peter's saying, listen, no matter how much you think you know of the gospel, you will lose focus. I need to continually keep telling you because your heart resists the truth and you cling to the ugly and not the good. Peter says, remember the gospel, the power of God. Be diligent in adding virtue and self-control and all those things. When God called the people of Israel out of Egypt and gave them festivals... When they would, when they would celebrate the Passover, they did it in such a way that they would sing songs, they would recite scripture, and it was the way in which the generation would join in with the older generation, and they'd be, they would, they would sense a partnership with the people as they remember what God has done in their lives. It's not just intellectual, it's emotional and it's behavioral. Remembering God's work on their behalf. Jesus says, when you come to the table, remember my death. Not just cognitively. No, it serves to confirm our faith. We take the Lord's Supper to strengthen and increase our faith in Jesus. Because our hearts need to remember. He says, I'll remind you of that. I'll remind you over and over so that you can know the truth and that you can be established. That word established means to be strengthened and to be stable in the truth. It's the same word that Jesus gave to Peter on the night in which he knew that that Peter was going to fall flat on his face. And he says to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I, Jesus, I'm praying for you. 
So when you turn, when you repent, strengthen. Sterazo, same word, strengthen your brothers. It's an architectural term, really. It's an architectural term. It's a stability and bring strength to a structure. I read this week one structural engineer. I'm like, all right, it's a structural term. I don't know much about structure. Uh, some of you may, but it's what a structural engineer wrote. He said, most people readily think of vertical stability and quickly relate that to the need of securing solid foundations. In other words, up and down solid foundations. He says, heavier loads require deeper, more solid foundations lest they become unstable. I get that. Also important is the horizontal stability of a structure. This is what ensures that a building doesn't blow over in a hurricane or shake loose during an earthquake event. So, the stability. That's what Peter's saying. The stability of the gospel. And you may wonder, why are we always talking about the gospel here? Because it will bring stability to your life. People look for churches for all kinds of different reasons. Oh, the children's program's there. Oh, it's so good. My kids really like it. Well, my kids like it too, and, and they like the circus. But I don't take them there every Sunday. Okay? Or some, you know, it's such an acceptance. You know, they accept me there at the church. Well, the local bar will accept you. Norm, you know the story, right? Everybody's accepted down at the Cheers. Some people go because the music's great. That's good. I'm going to see Bocelli next month. I'm sure the music will be great there in in June, but you know what? That's not the church. Some people will say, you know what? I feel good when I go to church. That, that's, that's a good reason. I feel good when I eat a big bowl of lasagna. So, you know, now all those things are good. Children should have fun. There should be joy in the church. Okay? The music is great. It should be good. All those things are good. But all those things do not give us the strength and the stability that we need that's in the gospel. That's why we bring everything back to the gospel, a regularly consistent declaring of the truth of the gospel that brings stability. It brings, uh, 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 you know, when life comes at us and the wind is blowing and the hurricanes are falling, we're stable, secure in the gospel. Verse 13, he says, I think it's only right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by the way of reminder. Keep saying that word. I want to remind you. Verse 14, since I know, Peter writing, that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. And I will make every effort now, he says, so that after my departure, you may be able to, at any time, to recall these things. Back to where we started. Final words. Final words are often meant to communicate things that are very important. Parents, remind your children as they get ready to go off to college, the very most important things. You have a few things to pick and you want to get it right. Guys, I don't know if you have any daughters like I do. They go out on their first date. You don't say things like, you know, did you remember to throw the garbage? You say, do you remember to bring your gun? That's what you say. Okay, the important things, okay? Business owners going away for a long extended period of time tells the staff, you know, don't, you know, they don't tell the staff, don't remember, or they tell the staff, remember to shut the bathroom light off. That's not what they say. They say, this is where the money goes. This is where the deposits are. Right? I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, where you can reach me. This is where the fire alarm is, the police alarms, lock the doors, important things. Peter wants to leave important things as he is about to leave. There's a man named Samuel Rutherford. He's a Scottish Presbyterian uh, pastor, theologian. And on his deathbed, this is what he wrote. Dear brethren, do all for him. Pray for Christ. Preach for Christ. Do all for Christ. Beware of men pleasing. The chief shepherd will shortly appear. What's most important? What would you say? 
What message would you communicate to your closest family friends if you were on your deathbed? Peter's about to die. Commentators are not really sure whether Peter got a new revelation from Jesus that he was about to die or that Peter is going back to the time on the shore when Jesus told him, you know what, you used to go wherever you wanted to go, but when you're old, you're going to be stretched out. Your hands will be stretched out and someone else will dress you and carry you. This he said to show by way of death he was to die and to glorify God. We don't know. But Peter knows at this point, life is very, very, very short. His days are numbered. And he wants to make it clear to the people of God how important it is to know the truth and to walk in that truth. To always remember the gospel and allow the gospel to control their hearts, to control their minds, that as the gospel changes them, they'll give glory to God and give them the assurance of their salvation of all that Christ has done for them, knowing that their election and calling are sure. Because reminders provoke believers and prompts us to cherish, to renew, and to cherish the gospel. Let me share the story to close. It is gratitude that prompted this old man to visit an old broken pier on the eastern seacoast of Florida. Every Friday night until his death in 1973, this old man would return, walking slowly and slightly, stooped with a large bucket of shrimp, The seagulls would flock to this old man and he would feed them from his bucket. See, many years later, in October 1942, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was on a mission in a B-17 to deliver an important message to General Douglas MacArthur in New Guinea. But there was an unexpected detour which hurled Captain Eddie into a most harrowing adventure of his life. Somewhere over the South Pacific, the Flying Fortress, this B-17, became lost beyond the reach of a radio. Fuel ran out. The men ditched their plane in the ocean. For nearly a month, this captain and his companions would fight the water and the weather and the scorching sun. They spent many sleepless nights recoiled in a, in a giant shark ramming against their rafts in the water. The largest raft was 955, and it says here, he writes, the biggest shark was 10 feet long. But of all the enemies at sea, one was the worst, starvation. Eight days their rations lasted and were gone. It would take a miracle now to sustain them. A miracle occurred in in this Captain Eddie's own words. He writes, this B-17 pilot, his name is Cherry, Captain William Cherry, he says, read the service that afternoon and we finished with prayer for deliverance and a hymn of praise. I have a little church service going on. There was some talk but it tapered off in the oppressive heat. He says, with my hat pulled down over my eyes to keep out some of the glare, I dozed off. He writes, something landed on my head. I knew it was a seagull. I didn't know how I knew, I just knew. Everyone else knew too. No one said a word. But peering out from my hat brim without moving my head, I could see the expressions on everybody's faces. They were staring at the gull. The gull meant food for us, if I could catch it. And the rest, he says, is history. Captain caught the gull. Its flesh was eaten. Its intestines was used for bait to catch more fish. The survivors were sustained and their hopes renewed because a lone seagull, uncharacteristically, hundreds of miles from land, offered itself as a sacrifice. You know that Captain Eddie made it. And now you also know that he never forgot because every Friday evening, about sunset, on a lonely stretch along the eastern Florida seacoast, you could see an old man walking, 
white hair, bushy eyebrows, slightly bent, bucket filled with shrimp with, so he can feed the gulls, to remember that one which on a long day ago gave itself without a struggle. As the band comes up, folks, listen to me for one minute. On the cross, Jesus gave up the most precious thing so that we could be His. He gave up His life so that we can have life. The Bible says the thief comes to seek, to kill, destroy. And I will say He also comes to take you off the path to the glorious entrance into eternity. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. The deeper you know the gospel, the greater you understand the gospel, the more you see all that Christ has done for you when you were helpless and yet still in your sin. You will be like that captain. It won't keep you idle. It'll keep you serving. It'll keep you walking. It'll keep you doing every day consistently. Not so that God will love you. The sacrifice has already taken place. Our response is to respond to what Jesus has already done. With a life of obedience, adding to our faith, virtue, goodness, self-control. And when those things are growing in our lives, we can have the certainty of what Christ has done for you. Do you have that certainty this morning? Are you playing games with God and have never truly repented and given your life completely to Him? Bowed your knee to King Jesus. He's not my homeboy. He's not something I add to my life. I have my Jesus thing over here. He is King, Lord, reigning, ruling, sovereign God of the universe who has called you to repent of your sins and follow Him. Have you done that? And maybe you're a Christian here and you know you've done that and you truly believe, you know what, I am a Christian, but I am, I am, I've been sidestepping, I've been walking away. Now's the time to repent and come back. Come back to the path that God has for you. Because He loves you, because He died for you, because He rose for you. Out of response, out of gratitude, as this old man did, out of gratitude. Let's come to Jesus together. Father, thank You for the Gospel. Lord, we know there's nothing we can do to earn Your favor. There's nothing we do to earn your love. There's nothing we can do to earn forgiveness. It is a gift. So God, we ask that we would see this gift afresh and anew in the work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Dying in our place, absorbing the wrath, rising from the dead, calling us now, even at this moment, through the words that I'm about to speak, that you would awaken hearts so that we repent of sins and believe on Jesus. Lord, we pray as we respond that your Spirit would have His way with us. Maybe for some it will be the first time. Repenting of sins, trusting in Jesus. And maybe for others it's just a repentance coming home to where they need to be. So Father, we pray that our responses would bring you glory and again so that we can have joy. Amen. Let's respond together.